I'm gonna see this X-Men movie and I don't wanna miss the trailers. I gotta go, I'm not your personal computer guy. Okay. I'm older than Aziz, probably like 10, maybe 15 years, and I went through almost exactly the same thing. Last time, Arun Roth and I gushed about Master of None, Aziz Ansari's Netflix show. It really resonated with us as fellow children of immigrants, and we appreciated the validation. This is a little bit I left out of that conversation. I, I've got to say growing up, and I'm curious if, if your upbringing was like this, we actually didn't talk about racism no. very much. No. It was not something we talked about at all, no. which seems very weird to me. And when I got to be a teenager, I, I thought, why didn't we talk about it? I've talked to a lot of first-generation people who say something similar. Their parents didn't talk to them about being different. Some came to that realization themselves, so they have a really personal relationship with otherness. And it's important to recognize that some first-generation people don't feel or think they're different at all. For example, I showed my mom and sister Master of None. What'd you guys think? I have to say, it felt a little forced, the whole thing. Yeah, I thought so, too. It's like he has an agenda to push. I liked that episode, but I have to say it was, it was too construed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I like the idea of it. It doesn't look very professional. The way they've done it? Uh-huh. Yeah, I would agree with that. They weren't as impressed. They're not looking for validation, like Arun and I. My sister was born in India, is now a doctor, and doesn't consider herself different. Because I don't consider myself anything. Oh. I'll tell you, in California, I actually felt almost like discriminated against because half of my residency class was Asian, and half of them were Indian. And there was one token white Jewish person. <laughs> Interesting. And I was the one that was too American in all of that. So I actually have a very different sense. And I think a lot of people in California would. So let's look at the experience in California. This episode, we're talking to a guy who grew up there and never thought much about being the son of Taiwanese immigrants until he became one of the highest ranking Asian American judges in the country. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this is Otherhood. One, two, three, now! A lot of people think Goodwin Liu would be Hillary Clinton's pick for the U.S. Supreme Court. Liu clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, is a Berkeley law professor, and he was 40 years old in 2011 when President Obama nominated him to sit on a U.S. Court of Appeals. I went back and listened to the debate in the Senate over Liu's nomination. And I thought it was interesting how his first-generation background came up when Virginia Senator Jim Webb opened the discussion. He is clearly talented. Whatever he ends up doing, he is certain to have a long future in our country. He also has been blessed beyond words by the goodness of our society. Both his parents came to this country already as physicians. He attended our finest universities. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He is a Yale Law School graduate. And he has spent almost his entire career as a talented, if somewhat controversial, professor of law. When I met with Mr. Liu, I found him to be personable and clearly bright. But intellect, in and of itself, does not always give a person wisdom, nor does it guarantee good judgment. This is where Webb lays out Republicans' main concerns about Liu. First, they don't like something Liu said about U.S. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. 
I wanted to include this comment because it's so relevant to things happening today. Mr. Liu's view was that, quote, Judge Alito's record envisions an America where police may shoot and kill an unarmed boy to stop him from running away with a stolen purse, or a black man may be sentenced to death by an all-white jury for killing a white man. I humbly submit that this is not the America that we aspire to be, end quote. Obviously, I share the view of many others that whether one agrees or disagrees with Justice Alito's view of the Constitution, this is hardly a fair representation of his view of our society. But Webb said his biggest concern was Liu's stance on affirmative action. Let me make a point that a lot of people seem uncomfortable with on speeches in this floor. That means white people, too. Economic disadvantage is not limited to one's race, ethnic background, or time of immigration to America. And when it comes to policies that are designed to provide diversity in our society, we do ourselves an enormous injustice by turning a blind eye to the wide variance among white cultures as we discuss greater representation from different minority groups. For all of his emphasis on diversity programs, I do not see anywhere that Mr. Liu understands this vital point. In fact, one tends to see the opposite. Republicans filibustered Liu's nomination, and Obama withdrew it. Within a few months, the governor of California nominated Liu for the state Supreme Court, and he was quickly confirmed. I happened to hear Liu speak at a conference on improving access to the court system. He basically told a room full of lawyers that they shouldn't have a monopoly on the justice system. I was struck that a state Supreme Court justice would say something so seemingly radical. But I talked to him afterward, and Lou said California's highest court is pretty unusual. Of the current seven members, three are Asian American. Wow. Right. So this doesn't exist anywhere else. Hawaii, I think, has at least one, maybe two. I, I have to check the numbers. But other than California and Hawaii, I don't believe there's any, uh, any Asian American on any state high court. Our chief justice on, in California is Filipina. Uh, I have one Chinese-American colleague, and then there's me. This is a recent phenomenon, though. I mean, almost all of those appointments were by President Obama. I don't think that story's ever been told, and it's a very significant change in the legal profession that if you wind the clock back just 40 years, you would find less than 500, less than 1,000 Asian Americans in all the law schools in America total. I actually was going to be a doctor like so many uh, Asian Americans. And my parents had been doctors. I had an older brother who became a doctor. Luckily, he became a surgeon. Um, so that left you free. Yeah, as, as one Asian American once joked with me, um, you know, people always say, at least not both of you ended up being complete disappointments. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think, so my, my range of vision was very limited. And in, luckily, in college, I had good mentors and people who pulled me aside and said, you know, if you're interested in these things, you really should think about law. I had never thought about law. It was something foreign to me. But I eventually found my way into law because of these interests. I'd never connected the interests with my parents' immigrant background, but I knew that I was doing something different. I knew that no one in my family had ever become a lawyer. I knew that this was against the grain in some way. And 
you know, I went to law school in the mid-1990s at a time when Asian Americans were not, they weren't zero at law schools, but they weren't also as robust as they are today. And so, yeah, I think I was conscious that, you know, I was breaking the mold in some way. What did your parents think of it? At first they were confused, disappointed, (laughs) you know. I mean, I'm going to say disappointed, but I think they just when your child goes off and does something different and you have no context for understanding what they're doing, it is a little disorienting. So they didn't know anything about law or law school. But in the end, you know, I think they, obviously, they're proud of me. And and they understand it in the sense that, look, I mean, they, politics and law is not something foreign to them. It's just that they understand it through another context, which is the context of their home, homeland. Why do immigrants come to America? because they intuit that you know, the political system or the legal system of their home countries are often suffering from certain kinds of dysfunction, which impacts freedom and opportunity, and that's why they leave. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think they... Uh, I don't think what I do is lost on them, because for a long time, Asian Americans in this country were not permitted to hold these positions of trust. I think the stereotype, among others, but one of the most difficult stereotypes that confront Asian Americans is that of the perpetual foreigner. I think you can go back and read these Supreme Court decisions from the turn of the century that talk about how Asian Americans are so different than any... I shouldn't even say Asian Americans, because they weren't Americans, they weren't citizens. Asians were regarded as so different from any other race that they could not be assimilated. That was that's written into the books, and so I consider it kind of a particular point of pride that you know not only to show that Asian Asian Americans can be integrated into the society, but that they can be its leaders. At what point did you start understanding that? It's so interesting. I I um, I grew up in a fairly like a leafy white suburb predominantly white suburb of Sacramento. I never thought anything of, of it, you know. I mean, I realized that was different, but I never thought anything of um, the notion of having an Asian-American identity. It just wasn't a relevant concept. And even through college, um, and even beyond that, I didn't really think that much about it. Beyond social dimension. You know, you'd, you'd find yourself in groups of people because of culture you're brought together and whatnot but not not in this not in this way that I understand it now and I think I've only begun to understand it now since becoming a judge it's hard to describe but I speak to a lot of bar associations I speak to a lot of Asian American student groups law schools and whatnot it's hard to describe but there is such emotional resonance that people have just that they see in you their hopes and dreams. You know, they see in you what they think their community can become. I, frankly, was taken aback by it. I didn't have a sense of how powerful um, an effect that has on people because it speaks to the very subtle ways in which people still find it 
occasionally difficult to navigate this world and not know where they're headed because if you don't have a role model, if someone hasn't, you know, someone with a similar background or someone whose experience you can relate to has done it before you, it's hard. It's hard to think that that's what you could become. Gosh, that's so satisfying to, to be that person. I, I mean, I, you know, I, satisfying, yes. I mean, I, I don't, um, <laughs> I don't think of it as personally satisfying, but I think of it as like an important contribution that I can make. And I didn't know I had this. So you as an individual, how are you different from a white justice? One of the reasons we have multi-member courts, especially at the appellate level, is because we don't think of every judge as a cookie cutter. And the problems that come to us are not algorithmic. And so every judge brings insight uh, from their personal experience and their background. So it's all in the mix. I, don't, I wouldn't venture any answer that tried to pinpoint any you know one characteristic in one case it really made a difference and I, mean, I don't think it actually works like that actually I think it's the composite of who people are which necessarily includes um, their heritage you know I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Sonia Sotomayor give a talk but it is the same thing exponentially magnified people of all races it's not just Latinos it's people of all races just leave her talks in tears because they just feel so strongly that not only is it is you know her life story and what she represents not only is it inspiring but it's an affirmation of what people want the country to be and I think that's incredibly powerful and I think she wears it very well too she embraces that role. I think that's very insightful. It's a very particular moment we're in. It's only going to happen for a few years. Don't you think? Why is that? What do you mean? There are going to be a lot more of you because you are being you and she's being yeah. who she is. It's going to be, well, it, it, yeah. I, I'm very encouraged by the direction of change, but I think it'll be gradual. I mean, there's still quite a few, you know, glass ceilings to be broken, sort of. I mean, I mean, every every group faces different kinds of um, challenges. Um, Asian Americans, I think, um, still have difficulty reaching the leadership positions. I think the other stereotype of Asian Americans is that they're the hard workers, they're the worker bees. But are they the people who you're going to put in front of the client? Are they the people who you're going to make partner? Are, are they the people who's going to close the deal? Are they the people who are going to trust to hire other people? So there are all these subtle obstacles, I think, that remain. And gradually that will change. But I think um, you know, we need to keep an eye on it.
Next time, we'll look at, among other things, the definition of the term first generation and all the feelings around calling people immigrant, first generation, or second generation. If you have thoughts you'd like to share about that, tweet me at OtherhoodPod. Thanks.